And we left off there in 1 Samuel 17. The Israelites were facing off against the Philistines. Goliath, that giant from Gath, uh, has been taunting Israel. And the tactics he was using, we talked about it, were intimidation, isolation, and negotiation. And those are tactics that the enemy will try to use against us as well. And how much better prepared we will be to do battle if we can recognize those tactics. He tried to intimidate them with his physical appearance. He had superior body armor and his, and his belittling words. Verbally, he wanted to just cut them down and intimidate them. He attempted to isolate them by calling for one man. Just give me your best man. And then he tried to negotiate with them. And if he wins, we'll serve you. And if we win, then you'll serve us. And he brought about this idea, well, there's no need for everyone to get killed here this afternoon. Let's just work it out one-on-one. And we come to verse 12 in 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read a few verses. If you'll follow along, we'll come back and talk about it. 1 Samuel 17, picking up in verse 12. David is coming on the scene. Now David, the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David was the little brother. Now, as I said, we all know the story. We know what's going to happen, but he's the youngest there of eight boys. And I want to turn back to chapter 16 to get a little bit of insight on David before we continue on here in chapter 17. So turn a few pages to the left with me to chapter 16, verse 1. I want to cover the section of scripture where David is actually being anointed as king in Israel. Although it would be a long time before he actually took the throne. Chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel is the prophet at this time in Israel. Saul was the reigning or the sitting king in Israel. David was, uh, there's been a problem between Saul and God. Do you remember what it was? It was disobedience. Saul had failed to follow the Lord. The Lord had, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel would show up on the seventh day. Uh, uh, Saul didn't want to wait any longer. He made the sacrifice without him and he tried to play it off. He was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites and he didn't destroy the Amalekites. He was supposed to take nothing from them and he didn't. He brought King Agag back who would eventually be responsible in Amalekite for the death of Saul. Uh, going further into kings. But he was, Saul was disobedient. Samuel's mourning because of the king of Israel is disobedient to the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, come on, Samuel, get up. I've got somebody I want you to go anoint as king. Young man David, let's go. He didn't tell him who it was. He just told him to go. Fill your horn with oil. I provided myself a king among the sons of Jesse and Bethlehem. Look at verse 2. Samuel says to the Lord, how can I go? Saul hears it. If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. So you can understand Samuel's, wait, 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 God, if I, if you want me to go anoint a new king in Israel while the reigning king is still on the throne? If he hears that, what's he going to do to me? He's going to kill me. You ever have concern with when the Lord tells you to do something? But Lord, if I do that, this might happen or that might happen. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one 
I named to you. The Lord says, go. And when you get there, Samuel, tell everyone that you're making the sacrifice to the Lord, which is true. When you get there, invite Jesse and the sons, and I'm going to show you who the next king of Israel will be. I like how the Lord paces him. I'm going to give you the next step, Samuel, but I'm not going to tell you everything. He didn't say go anoint David as king. He said just go. See the sons of Jesse. Oftentimes in our lives, the Lord only gives you one step at a time. Have you realized that? Well, I have a burden. I have a calling for something in my life. The Lord says, fine, go. Well, but what's going to happen? I'm not telling you that. You probably couldn't handle that. But what if I, what if, just, just go. Just do the next step. Just go, Samuel. Go. The Lord says, go. I'll show you which one to anoint when you get there. Your walk of obedience, my walk of obedience, is one step of faith after another. And you might not see step two until you take step one. You have to take step one first. He's not going to show you the whole plan. He might even give you the final destination, but he's not going to give you the route to get there. It's one step of faith after another. Truth be told, I don't think we could handle if he laid it out for us. I don't think we could really handle it. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be here, but this is how it's going to work. You go, no, I can't handle all that. I'm not even going to take step one. He says, all right, well, you just, I'm going to make it easy for you. Just take step one. Just, just do the one thing I ask you to do. What's the one thing? Just take that first step. When we got involved in radio, it was our church. We had no idea what we're doing. You may or may not know, nobody in this church had any background in radio whatsoever. Yet we bought a radio station. We had no idea how to put it together, how to turn it on, or how to plug the equipment in. But we knew if we take one step, the Lord's faithful. And we took one step, then another step, then another step, and we watched He provided along the way. We're doing the exact same thing right now with the, with the discipleship program to help addicts. It's, 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 it's starting to unfold. We really don't know what we're doing. We're, try, we're praying about it. We're taking one step after another. And each point we say, all right, Lord, what's the next step? We wait. You see, when He does it that way, who gets all the glory? He does. If I was to hire somebody that had run addiction programs in the past and bring them in and bring them in as a director, who would get all the glory? They would. They don't need the Lord. But when the Lord takes an ordinary person and does an extraordinary thing, and that person goes, it's the Lord's work. Don't think for a moment the radio station is because of me or Kevin or anybody else. It's something the Lord did. We're just people that he uses. And he wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But you've got to take one step after another. Samuel was obedient. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said. He went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. And they said, do you come peaceably? Talk about a guilty conscience. Here's the man of God coming into the town, and the people are trembling. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Hey, Sam, are you here peaceably? What are you here for? Verse 5, he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, which means set yourselves apart. And come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Everything's going as planned. There in verse 6, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is Samuel. His first son, Jesse's first son, Eliab. Wow, look at that guy. He must be the next king of Israel. He just looks like a king. He's fit like a king. He carries himself like a king. He's got all the outward appearances of a king. He's tall, good-looking young man, probably great king, great leader, going to make a great king. That's him. Thanks, God. This is such easy work. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord 
does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If that verse isn't underlined in your Bible, it should be. Man looks at the outward appearance. Samuel, the prophet of God, says, that's him. This is easy. I'm going to be home before dinner. This is perfect. I'm going to anoint him king. And God says, no, Samuel, you're looking at the outward. You see, I want a man after my own heart. That's not going to be seen in the outward appearance of a man. It's going to be seen in an inward man, in a man's heart. We can pretend to be after God's own heart on the outward very easily. But I want a guy who wants to know me in his own heart. That's who Israel already picked their first king in Saul. They picked a handsome man, head and shoulders above everyone else. But that's not who I want next. I want to, I want to pick a man, a man that's going to be after my own heart. Verse 7. That's where he just talked about, I've refused him. I've refused him. When one man looks at another man, we really don't have a way of discerning the heart, do we? We can look at the outward appearance. We can look and go, well, he looks like he's got things squared away. Oh, he's, yeah, he, he, he's really doing a good job with his family. Yeah, they come to church every week. They're doing fantastic. But what's going on behind closed doors? What's going on between a husband and a wife when no one's watching? What's, go, what's being said? What's being, is it, is it what we see? The Lord says, I can see the heart. I can see what's being said behind the doors. I can see his real attitude. I can see his or her real heart. When one man looks at another, all we see is the outside, which is the part they want us to see. Have you noticed that Facebook isn't real? We put up what we want everyone to see. Oh, I'm on vacation. Take it. Let me take a selfie at the men's conference. Here we go. I don't have my phone or I would. But we don't ever put what we, want, what we don't want them to see. We don't ever put, I'm really struggling today. Yeah, I lost a battle. Failed in temptation. Sin is abounding in my life today. Yeah, my thought life, oh, you don't, let me tell you what I'm thinking. We never put that stuff out there. People might not like us. Might not let us back in church, right? We can't have anything to do with them. We're going to cover it all up. We're going to present it on the outside. Just be reminded that God sees the inside. And he's far more concerned with the inside than the outside. We can't fool him. So Samuel must find David next, right? There in verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. That's it. I thought, God, I thought you said you were going to pick somebody here. Samuel says to Jesse, are all the young men here? Hey, Jesse, is everyone here? Are these all of your sons? And Jesse says, then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. Just, just, he wasn't even invited. He's not even invited to the sacrifice. David's out in the field. There is, Jesse, is there anybody else? This is all your sons? Well, out there. Wait, see, he's out there playing with the slingshot. He's out there playing with the slingshot. He's out there keeping the sheep. What's he doing? He's got that harp thing. He's playing. He says he's writing songs. I mean, what's he doing out there? There's one. We'll go get him. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and very carefully read this, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. He did it. That's the one. The one that nobody else thought. 
God often chooses the most unlikely people to do his work. Why? So he gets the glory. So he gets the glory. What was David doing when he was anointed by God? He was keeping the sheep. He's being a shepherd over the, out in the field watching. It wasn't a popular job. It wasn't a career, good career choice. It wasn't a highly desired job. He wasn't very well respected. He wasn't even invited to the sacrifice. They, didn't, they just left him out there. But what he was doing was being obedient and faithful to his father while he was waiting. He stayed faithful. He stayed obedient. He could have been out there whining and complaining. Oh, what's going on back there? I see the fire burning. Oh, they must be having another party. They didn't invite me. Nobody likes me. They don't want anything to do with me. No, I'm just the black sheep of the family. Why do I have to sit out and watch the sheep? Why can't one of these other guys come out and watch the sheep? I'm tired. I need to go in and rest. I need to take a bath. Consider what David learned while spending time with the sheep. While spending time in the lowly job. The one that nobody wanted. Consider what he learned. Keeping the sheep gave David time to think. Gave him time to think. Just picture he looks at the heavens. He looks at creation. And God begins to reveal himself to him. Out in there by himself with the sheep. Quiet time. He starts writing down songs. We know them as the Psalms. He starts writing things that are ministering to us still today. Keeping the sheep taught David what a good shepherd looked like. Didn't he write Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he wrote Psalm 23. It's a, it's a personal thing. He's seeing the Lord is doing what I'm doing to these sheep in my life. He's making that connection. Keeping the sheep prepared David for the physical battles, didn't it? It's, it's, he, it, it taught him that there's going to be battles. He had to trust God as he defended the sheep from bears and lions, the scriptures will tell us in a little bit. It's where he probably refined his skills with a slingshot. Sitting out there, practicing, maybe setting up cans. I know they didn't have cans, but setting up something on a rock. How far can I hit that from how far back? Getting better and better and better. Farther and farther and farther. What's he doing out there? He's just hanging out, playing his harp, worshiping the Lord. The years that David spent in the field with the sheep, they were preparation. They were training. They were preparing him for something. And if you were to look at his life, you'd think he's not being prepared for anything. He's going to be a shepherd his whole life. But the Lord was preparing him for something greater. He had to be prepared. He had to get ready. Something greater, something more magnificent, like defeating Goliath. Or perhaps becoming the king of Israel. David was a great man and was a great king of Israel because he never lost his shepherd's heart. Oh, he made some mistakes along the way. We know that. But he still had a desire, a man after God's own heart. He still wanted what God wanted. You know where David went right after this when he was anointed king? Right after this, Samuel comes in. You're king, David. You know where he went? Back to the field. Back to keep the sheep. Seven more years, eight more years. It's debatable. Several more years. Wait a minute, I'm the king of Israel. What am I doing keeping sheep? That's where your dad needs you right now. That's, that's where I'm going. I'm going out to keep the sheep. No, no, I just got anointed by Sam the prophet. You got, I got to go. I got work to do. No, you got preparation to do. You've got training to do. You're not ready for the work that lies ahead of you. You've got you've to get yourself ready. You've got to let the Lord train you and teach you. I say that. I point that out because maybe today you're in training. Maybe you're being prepared for something greater. Maybe you look at your job and you go, I don't like this job. It's stupid and no one likes me and I, my boss doesn't like me and this and that. Start practicing with your slingshot and you can take your boss out. No, I'm just kidding. 
Maybe the Lord's preparing your heart. Maybe he wants you to look up at the heavens and see the majesty of the Lord. Maybe he's preparing you for something. He's getting you ready for something. He's working and you go, I don't want you to work here, Lord. I want, you to, I want to do something great for you. And he goes, you will, but stay in training right now. Because right now, if you were to go on your own, you'd fail miserably. It'd be all about you. Why don't you be obedient to me? David's father put him in the field watching sheep. And then he would send him to his brothers. Just bring food. Just carry some food with them. Just go, go do, run my errands. And he did it. Faithfully. Obedience. They were his preparation. They were his training. I had no idea. And in case you didn't know, before I was a pastor, I was a police officer. And I had no idea if you would have asked me as a police officer, is God going to use that in being a pastor someday? I'd have said, there's no way. There are two, people say, there are two, that's two very different careers. No, they're not. They're very similar careers. They're, believe it or not, the way that you deal with people, I had this question asked to me as a police officer before I came to Cumberland to Planet Church, how are you going to deal with tragedy? When someone comes to you and somebody died in the family, and how are you going to deal? You've never dealt with that. I said, I deal with that every day. Have you ever knocked on a family's home and told them their children has passed away? you ever knocked on a family's home and had to give them news that they don't want to hear? you ever walked into a domestic situation and had to arrest one of the husbands or wives and, and, and the children are there and realize what tragedy is unfolding? I said, I'm dealing with that every single day of my career. I work violent crimes. I try, it was amazing. When I look back, I didn't see it at the time, but when I look back, all of the things that I've endured and been through and gone, done and gone through is all preparation for me being a pastor. And I didn't know it at the time. But like David preparing with the sheep, it was the same thing in my life. And it might be the same thing in yours. I'm sure of it. Right now you're being prepared for something. And it might not be. I'm not saying all men are going to be pastors. Please don't misunderstand that. A ministry is you doing what the Lord calls you to do. Whether it be being a plumber or a carpenter or a pastor, that's your mission field. Wherever he's got you, wherever he's planted you, that's where you produce fruit. That's where you grow. You don't, don't follow someone else's plan. We're not going to copy David. Don't copy my plan. It's not like every pastor has to be a police officer. It, it, that, that was my plan that God used in my life, and he's using that in my life. He's got something different for, some, for everybody else. Before Samuel showed up in Bethlehem, David had no idea that he would be king. Think about that. You ever notice how life can change in a day, in a moment? David had no idea. He was out watching the sheep. Here comes Samuel, and all of a sudden now he leaves that day going, I'm going to be the king of Israel. I wonder if he thought Samuel was nuts. What are you, nuts? I'm not even the oldest, I'm the youngest kid. I, I get nothing. I got no respect in this family. They didn't even invite me to the feast. Now you're telling me I'm going to be king. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe it was that way at all. I believe he knew. The Holy Spirit came upon him from that day forward, it said. He knew. And we know from the scriptures, he waited until the Lord put him as king. He had many times to take the throne when he, had, when, when he could have killed Saul himself. He didn't do it. And his heart was, Lord, if, if you're going to remove Saul, that's fine, but I'm not going to be the one to do it. And he became, eventually became the king of Israel. Now let's turn back to chapter 17 of one page over. Verse 16. The Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Morning and evening. Goliath is coming out, taunting them every day, twice a day. Twice a day. Does the enemy ever taunt you? Does he ever taunt you twice a day? <laughs> I'd be lucky if it was only twice a day, right? Yeah, he taunts you every day. The Israelites, they're scared. They're being intimidated physically, verbally, and Goliath is attempting to isolate them. He's trying to get them 
to give in to his negotiation. Can you imagine this scene? When you stand in the Ela Valley, it's a huge valley. It's wide. There's a mountain on the left. There's a highway behind you. On the right, there's kind of a little hill, which is going towards the Mediterranean. I can just imagine the Israelites have a city up on top of this mountain on the left. The, the Philistines are on the right. And here comes Goliath walking across this field. It's probably a mile across. They see him coming down as he's yelling, taunting them. And they're up on top of the mountain scared. What are we going to do? Here he comes again. Maybe today won't be the day. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's sick. Maybe he'll call in sick today. Maybe he won't come today. Twice a day he comes, morning and noon, coming out, taunting them. Can you imagine what that would look like? Here he comes, 40 days. And I just imagine, you know, Saul gets them all riled up. All right, tomorrow's the day. We're going to take him down. When he comes across that hill and he comes across that hill, we're all going to run down and get him. Okay, and here he comes. Everyone's scared. No, not today, not today. We're not doing it. While this is all going on, David's back in Bethlehem with the sheep about to come to the battlefield. Look at there at verse 17. Jesse said to his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. Carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousands and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and, they all, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Isn't that funny? How David's dad, Jesse, at this precise time, calls David in and says, David, I want you to take some food to your brothers. Go check on them. See how they're doing. It's a coincidence, right? Oh, no, God knew what was going to unfold. He knew it was coming. Take the, the, the Lord's timing is always perfect. My life, your life, David's life, it's always perfect. God knew this was going to take place. Take this food. See what's going on. Don't go too early. Don't get lagged behind. Take it from a guy. I've run ahead of the Lord a few times. It's not good. Wait on him. But don't get lagged. I've lagged behind as well. That's not, that's not a good place to be either. Verse 20, David arose early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper. He took the things and he went as Jesse had commanded him. Obedience. Came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. They're all riled up. They're going out to fight. This is the day. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. David leaves somebody with the sheep. He's a good shepherd. Left somebody back home, take care of the sheep. He comes into the camp. The fight's about to happen. Army against army. They're shouting for battle. The Philistines have drawn up in battle array. There they are. Verse 22, watch what happens as David comes into the camp of the Israelites. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and he came and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. David goes to catch up with his brothers. Hey guys, how's it going? You guys are getting ready to go to battle. Let's, let, all right, let's, we're going to watch this unfold. Very good. And then here he comes, the champion. Here comes Goliath. I just picture the armies of the Philistines all kind of parting. And here comes Goliath walking through taller than everybody else. Here he comes asking the same question. Why have you come out for battle? Why are you here? Am I not a Philistine? You're the servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourselves this day. Send one man. Look, we don't need to kill everybody. Just send us your best man. Let's just send your best. Your best, our best. Whoever wins, wins. Remember in chapter 
17, verses 8 through 10, I defy the armies of Israel this day. I defy the armies of Israel. Give us a man that we may fight together. There they are in battle array, the Israelites. By the way, Israel means governed by God. There they are, the, the, the nation that God has chosen, the nation that God is going to show himself strong through. There they are, gathered for battle against the Philistines. Look what it produces in their heart. Verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's Goliath, they saw the man. They weren't looking up. They were looking out. Fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Dreadfully afraid. There was not a single man among them who would take on Goliath. There was not a single man in the Israeli army at this point that would take on Goliath. Not one. What about three of them getting together and say, we'll go take him out? There's going to be a battle anyways. What about five of them getting together? Let's just go. Why do you have to listen to what they're saying? Not a single man would come and take on Goliath. <coughs> you know why? Because they're focused on the wrong thing. They're looking at Goliath. They're looking at his size. They're listening to his words. They're focusing on the physical problem before them. The physical problem? That's Goliath. That's the giant. That's the thing that's facing them. What they weren't focused on was the Lord. They were focusing on the physical problem. Look there at verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. In other words, the guys standing around David. David, have you seen this man? Have, have you seen the size of him? I mean, he is huge. He is so big. And the king wants him dead. He's come up to defy us. And by the way, that word defy means to annoy or to taunt. He's taunting us. He's annoying us. Goliath is now annoying them, making fun of them, refusing to move from their land. Remember, it's on Judah's land. The battle's taking place. He's on their property, land that had been given by them, making fun of them. David, it's so bad. The king's offered a bribe. I mean a reward for anybody that'll go fight him. You're going to get some good stuff. He's going to make you rich. You're going to get his daughter. <laughs> we know that didn't turn out so well. But you're going to get a wife out of it, the king's daughter. And your family doesn't have to pay taxes. Nobody's willing to go take this. No one's willing to try. No one's willing to go out. And David responds there in verse 26 by asking two questions. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That's the first question. What is going to happen? What happens to him? The second question is, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see those two questions? The Israelites were looking at Goliath from a physical perspective. He's big. He's strong. They had taken their eyes off the Lord and they'd placed them on their problem, which was Goliath. Like you've never done that. Like I've never done that. But Lord, I've got something going on in my life and it's a big problem. It's a really big problem and I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to handle it. What am I going to do? I'm having financial trouble. There's pain in my life. There's a sickness in my life. Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
You know, the moment you take your eyes off the Lord and put it on your problem, your focus is off, out of whack. You're not, in the, you're, not, you're, you're not focusing on the right thing. Instead of saying what should have happened, they should have been looking and go, yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good sized man coming there. He's got a lot of armor. Man, I can't wait to see how the Lord's going to take him down. That's going to be really cool to watch. I wonder who's going to get to be blessed and take him down. What's going to happen here? But that wasn't their, their heart at all. When you're in the battle, when you're fighting your Goliath, when you have that thing, and, it's, and again, please remember, Goliath is not always sin. It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be illness. It could be sin. But when you're fighting that thing, and you take your eyes off of the Lord, and you put it on your problem, all of a sudden your problem looks huge, and your God looks small. But if you have the right perspective of who your God is, your God is huge, and your problem is small. To see how that works. Let me show you the difference a proper perspective makes. The men of Israel said in fear and trembling, this man. That's how they referred to Goliath, this man. David said, this uncircumcised Philistine? That's who you're talking about? This uncircumcised pagan-worshipping Philistine? That's who you're afraid of? The men of Israel, while scared to death, said, surely he's come to defy Israel. Surely he's come to defy us. He's, He's taunting us. He's making fun of us. And David responded, that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. We are an army of the living God. Are you serious? You're worried about this guy? Have you forgotten that the name Israel means governed by God? You see the difference the perspective makes. The men of Israel said, the man who kills him. And I bet, in my opinion, they said it like it was impossible. The man who kills him. Like, not that anybody could. But if you could, you'd get a lot of money. And you'd have a, that daughter, that cute little daughter that Saul's got. Yeah, that, that would be your wife. And your whole family doesn't have to pay taxes, but not that anybody really could. And then David says, the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. This Philistine is uncircumcised. He's pagan worshiping. He's reproaching Israel. Do you see the difference? The army is going, we can't do it. We're in battle array, but we're scared to death. Because what are they looking at? They're looking at Goliath before them. They're looking physically what lies before them. If you get stuck looking at physically what lies before you and not looking up at the Lord that's doing the work or the one capable of doing the work, your perspective will be out of whack too. David's got the proper perspective. One commentator said this. He said, David saw things from the Lord's perspective. But the men of Israel saw things from man's perspective. Please do not make the mistake in this life of only looking at your circumstance from man's perspective. See it from the Lord's perspective. You might see the eternal value. You might see the greater purpose. You might see what he's doing through it. But when you look at it and you go, I just don't like being here. I just want to go home. Let's let's just go home, David. Let's not stay and fight. Let's just go home. Let's just make it go away. We're going to lose anyways. How about the attitude that says, you know what, Lord, you're in charge. If if it's your will that we lose, then we lose, but we're going to fight for you. If it's your will that we win, we're going to win, but our focus is on you. Lord, let your will be done. They didn't want the Lord's will. They wanted their will. They didn't see a possibility of obtaining their will. But when you look and you go, Lord, I don't care what happens. It's your will. Whatever you want to do, Lord. You, You lead this battle. You show us how. You give us the way. You show us. Look how they respond there in verse 27. They repeated themselves. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. 
Here's this young man. Some people say 15, some say early 20. That's about how old David was at this time, 15, 20, somewhere late teenager, early 20s, whatever. A little bit of discrepancy there. Young man comes into the camp. No armor, no sword, no nothing. And he's standing there with all the people decked out in all their war gear, everything they had, ready to do battle. He goes, what's wrong with you guys? He's uncircumcised Philistine. You gotta, you're serving the living God. Don't let him reproach you. And they're going, no, no, you don't understand. Have you seen this man? And what do, you think brother, what do you think David's brothers say? Look at verse 28. Anybody got brothers? They're always supportive, aren't they? I don't have any brothers, but I have three sons. So I get to watch it. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. Eliab's mad. He's angry. Why do you suppose he was so angry? Why is he? Because of the way David's talking. David's going, what's wrong with you guys? Why was he so angry? Number one, Eliab didn't really know David that well. He didn't really know what was going on in David's heart. All he saw was the outward. All he saw was a shepherd. All he saw was a kid with a shepherd's staff in his hand. He's not qualified to do a battle on a field, yet he's talking like he's going to win the battle for us. He's a kid. He's probably going to get hurt. He belittles David. Who have you left those few sheep with? That little job that you have, that little thing. Come on, run along. Run along and take care of your sheep, David. Come on, go run along. He belittles him. You, you don't have the ability you see, Eliab misunderstood David's motivation. Eliab misunderstood. He thought David was in it for himself. I know the pride and the insolence of your heart. Eliab says, I know why you're doing this. You just came down here to watch the battle. You just want to see the fight unfold. You just want to see us go hand-to-hand combat. You want to see who's going to win. You want to, you want to sit up on the hill and watch us go down in the valley and watch the, the blood and the carnage happen. You want to, you want to see who, who's going to fight Goliath. I, I see what you're doing. You ever misunderstood somebody's motivation for doing something? You ever had somebody misunderstand yours? Sure you have. It usually happens. It usually happens when you judge the heart of someone else by what's in your own heart. In other words, when you misunderstand somebody's motivation or they misunderstand yours, you're usually judging they're doing it because of what's in your own heart. That's what I would do. That would be my heart. That's why he's doing it. You're taking your heart, you're putting it on somebody else going, it's, that's why they're doing it. And you end up misunderstanding, misinterpreting, not completely understanding their motivation. Another reason that Eliab was so angry is because David was right. Don't you hate it when your brother's right? We don't like that. He was right. Come on, guys. You know how it feels when your wife is right? I hate that. You're right. You're right. You're right. I try it. You're right. Say it real fast. You're right, honey. You're right, honey. I love you. You know? We don't like that you're right. We don't want to be wrong. David was right in all the things he said. He was absolutely right. We are God's people. Why should we be afraid of this giant is what he was saying. Eliab goes, you don't understand the circumstance. You don't understand how big he is. Look at this whole army. You don't understand. And David goes, I do understand. I understand who God is. I understand who my God is. you missing the point, Eliab. You're not looking up at the Lord. You're looking out at your circumstance. It'll never fail. When you're walking in the will of God, there will always be those people who misunderstand your motivation. 
Every pastor knows it. You should hear the things we get accused of sometimes. We understand. We know. We understand. That's the way that you would be. And we don't even say that back to the people. We just ask, us, ask them for forgiveness and say, I'm sorry if we offended you. I'm sorry if, we, if you misunderstood. We don't get angry. We try not to. Try not to. We realize that's the cost of doing ministry. Sometimes the attacks when you're walking in the will of the Lord come from your family members. They don't understand. They don't understand your motivation is to please the Lord because they don't have a relationship with the Lord that way. They can't understand your relationship with the Lord that way. They look at you and think, well, you're just kind of weird. You're just kind of taking this little God stuff a little too far, aren't you? What's wrong with you? They don't understand your motivation. They don't understand the truth. They don't, they don't get it. Your husband or your... No husbands in here. Sorry. I'm thinking Sunday. Your wife might not understand. <laughs> your wife might understand your motivation for doing something. It's the same idea. Sometimes these attacks come from our family members. And if we get our eyes off the Lord and we start looking at our circumstance, we are, just, we are going to be just like the Israelites. Scared, whining, crying. Have you seen my problem? Have you seen the sin that I have to face? Do you know the illness I'm facing? Do you know what lies before me? You don't understand. Oh, how we need to tell each other in love. Your perspective is off. You're looking at the flesh and not in the spirit. You're fighting the wrong enemy. You're not realizing who God is. Because regardless of what happens, it's his will that you want done, not yours. As much as we think we know. Look how David responds there in verse 29. David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. What have I done? Is there not a cause? And these people answered him as the first one did. David stuck to his position. He stuck to what he said. Is there not a cause? I only asked a question. I asked two questions. Is there, is, am I not justified? I want to know. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? And why is he allowed to defy the armies of the living God? He answered David the same way. This is my perspective. David, you don't understand. He, he's so big. He's so strong. He's overtaking us. We, he's been doing this for 40 days. We don't know what... Have you seen the size of his spear, David? Do you see the armor? We don't even have a way of penetrating his armor. We don't even know... How, how, David, you're not, you're not thinking this through logically. It doesn't make sense. Do you see how we apply that rationalization to the enemies in our own life? We can't, we can't possibly beat this thing. I don't know, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking to the wrong thing. It's in the Lord we need to be looking. David is more concerned with God's cause than with his own feelings. How is this making the Lord look? Are you guys giving any consideration to how it makes our God look? They all know Hebrew. They all know Israel means governed by God. Do you realize this is making our God look pathetic? Do you realize that right now as we're standing here scared and he's standing there threatening us, our God looks weak and useless? That kind of hits home when you apply it to your own life, doesn't it? How does your life make our God look? What does it look like? Is he seen as powerful and strong? Is there a testimony that says, look what he's done in my life. Look how he's changed me. Look what he's accomplished. Look, look at my marriage. It was a mess and now it's back. Look at, look at my life. I was, I was broken and fallen apart and couldn't function in society. Look what God did. Or does our God, does our, do we make our God look like the Israelites are making their God look? Shaking, shuddering. Lord, I can't handle this life. I can't handle what you've got me through. I don't understand, God. God, if you love me, you'd take it away. God, if you'd fix it, God, make, make it go away. 
David didn't care about his glory or success, but only for the glory and success of the Lord's cause. His will be done, not ours. Right there, Goliath was defeated. Right there, when it became about God and not about David. It wasn't about, let me show you how strong I am. Let me show you what a man, let me show you what a good shepherd boy can do. It wasn't about him, it was about God. You see, he turned the whole thing and said, this is about the living God of Israel. And you guys are making him look pathetic, is what David's saying to him. Man, that's challenging, that's convicting in my heart. What does my life make the living God look like? Is it success, victory? It's challenging, convicting. Eliab's words were no doubtful, hurtful to David. They hurt. It's his brother. But David did not let them derail him. When you step out in ministry, when you do something in ministry, when you sit down and you teach your first Bible study in your family, your wife might say something, well, that wasn't very good. And you go, all right, I'm done. I'm never doing that again. No, no. No, no. That's what would happen if David would have packed up and went back home. No, no, that's not how, that's, that, that's quitting. That's not what happens. Eliab's words were hurtful, but David did not turn aside from what the Lord had called him to do. He continued on. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, immediately before the encounter with the Philistine, he fought a battle which cost him far more thought, prudence, and patience. The word battle in which he had to engage with his brothers and with King Saul was a more trying ordeal to him than going forth in the strength of the Lord to smite the uncircumcised boaster. Many a man meets with more trouble from his friends than from his enemies. And when he has learned to overcome the depressing influence of prudent friends, he makes short work of the opposition of avowed adversaries. Wow. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. Sometimes it's what we say to each other that can be so hurtful. His brother should be encouraging him. David, if you think you can handle him, go ahead. None of us are going. But he doesn't. He puts him down. He belittles him. And he knows David's right. This is happening. I just picture a small corner of the army. The guys are listening. All of a sudden, word travels back to King Saul. Hey, there's a guy over there who's talking like nobody else. Really, what's he saying? He's talking about the God of Israel. He's talking about the uncircumcised Philistine. He's talking about the the strength of the living God. He's not scared a bit. Saul says, bring him to me. I got to meet this guy. Bring him to me. And David is taken off to Saul. Verse 31, then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. As David is speaking with such bold words, somebody goes and tells Saul. And Saul says, bring him back. I need to talk to this guy. Let me see what he's really all about. And we'll pick up there after lunch. Just like last time, before we close, take two or three minutes. And I would encourage you to seek the Lord. Maybe there's something that he wants you to show. Maybe you've been showing your God weak because you've been focusing on the wrong issue. Maybe you've been focusing on the problem before you rather than the strength of your Lord. Maybe it's been about you and not about him. Are you concerned with more of his name and how he looks through your situation? You're concerned with more of how you fare or how you feel. You see, we're not led by feelings. We don't move on emotions. We walk in the will of God. and We're led by our creator. Father, as we come before you for these next few minutes before we have our lunch, may you work in our hearts. And Lord, I thank you for our lunch and the women that are preparing it. I pray that you'd bless it to our bodies. That's our physical food. But Lord, we also need spiritual food here today. So minister to us spiritually as we take and seek you over these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.